Good morning. I'm excited to be with you this morning and have the opportunity to share with you from God's Word. So apparently something, some significant event uh, happened over the weekend. The Olympics. Anybody been watching the Olympics? I don't, I don't know what to think about that opening ceremony. I vote, I vote Beijing four years ago. I don't know about y'all. But I also heard that I think one of the Indonesian badminton players, or, or whoever the badminton players are, were offered a gold bar that they won with the gold medal. Worth like $600,000. I mean, how hard can badminton be? Really? I think I'm going to take up the sport. Well, if you haven't been with us recently, or you're a guest, we have, uh, we've been walking through the book of Philippians, and that's where we'll be today, and I invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them to the book of Philippians. And if you do not have a Bible, I want you to just lift up your hand, and we can get one to you. Rob is walking around with one, he can hand you one. Just lift up your hand until he gets, gets one to you. But if you haven't been with us, Paul... Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, and he is writing it from a Roman jail and chained to a Roman soldier, and perhaps waiting to be executed. That's a little context behind what's going on and why Paul is, where Paul is writing this letter from. And he is writing to them a letter of joy in the midst of his suffering in, in, in prison. And so we've picked up in our series in the fourth chapter of Philippians, and our focus today is going to be verses 2 through 9. And today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use our mission statement as a church, as our main focus. And in particular, I'm going to use a, a specific word out of that mission statement. Uh, can somebody tell me what our mission statement is here at Newtown Church? Right, inviting busy people to experience the peace of life with Jesus Christ. And as I said, we're going to look at a particular word in this statement. And that word is peace. We're going to look at the word peace. So we say we're inviting you to experience peace in your life with Jesus. So what exactly is this, is this peace that we're inviting you to experience? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. And, and Paul, in these few verses that we're going to read, is giving us a formula for peace. So let us look at the text together. And in, in preparation for reading God's Word, I ask that you stand out of respect for reading of His Word. In chapter 4, as it says, starting in verse 2 and reading through verse 9. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. You see here, Paul is having to confront a problem at Philippi. Evidently, two of the ladies couldn't get along, and it had become an event in the church. And here Paul is pleading for unity and cooperation, but he goes further and he gives them a formula for peace. 
And again, you might ask, Jonathan, what, what do you mean when you say peace? What is this peace? Well, before we define what peace is, let me clarify what I'm not referring to as peace, as far as the world gives us. Peace is not merely the absence of activity. We often use the phrase peace and quiet to refer to our need to slow down and get away from things. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict. The biblical concept of peace is much deeper than just not having conflict. And then peace is not just getting away from reality. Well, we, we, we tend to go on vacation and get away from everything. So this is what I'm not referring to as peace when I describe the peace that we're inviting you to. You see, in the Old Testament, the word Shalom is a state of, Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. And, and, and in the Old Testament, it was, a, it was a state of wholeness and harmony that was intended to resonate in all relationships. And when used as a greeting, Shalom was a wish for outward freedom from disturbance as well as an inward sense of well-being. And to a people constantly harassed by enemies, the Jewish people, peace would have been a blessing to them. In Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, God gave these these words to Moses in blessing his people. It reads, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now the New Testament describes peace in at least three aspects. That's what we're going to focus on today. Peace with God which is something that actually takes place between you and God. You make peace with God. There's a transaction there. Something happens. And then after you make peace with God, then you can experience the peace of God. And this takes place internally and is something that resides within you. And then peace with others. When we have peace with God and we experience the peace of God, we can then extend that peace amongst others. So we're going to start by looking at the first aspect which is peace with God. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, it says, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. This is amazing to me, the thought of the Lord rejoicing over me and singing. You see, in order for us to move forward in our journey to joy, we must first recognize that God rejoices over us with singing. And while this is certainly true, and we need to let it soak into our spirits, there's a corollary to this biblical truth. Because you've been created in the image of God, you matter greatly to Him. But due to the devastating effects of sin, before we come to faith in Christ, you and I, you and I are also considered to be at war with God. Romans 5.10 refers to us as enemies of God. It says, God was your enemy and you were His adversary. And this is hard for us to swallow because many of us don't feel like we've been at war with God. We might not think that, that we've been fighting Him, but the Bible clearly teaches that He is at war with those who do not know His Son, Jesus. You see, God is the enemy of sin and Satan. And before you came to Christ, you were a child of the darkness and were therefore locked in this conflict with the Almighty God, the one that created you. Ephesians 2, 3 adds that we were by nature objects of God's wrath. And Psalm 7, 11 puts it strongly. It says, God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses His wrath every day. See, before we can understand this dimension of peace, we must first come to grips with, our, with the state of our relationship with God apart from Christ. 
Now, while God loves us and cherishes us, He is also repulsed at our sinfulness. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's bad news. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. That's, I, don't want, I don't want to experience that. Now in five, Romans 5, 1, it, we see it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news, amen? Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because of what Jesus did on the cross, you and I can now be at peace with God. God the Father poured out His wrath and His anger on His Son, who died in our place, as our sin substitute. Colossians 1.20 says that Jesus reconciled Himself to all things, making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Now, listen carefully. We don't deserve this peace. In fact, what we deserve is eternal punishment. Because, but because of God's great love and His grace and His mercy, He provided a way for us to be set at one again with God, who created the universe. His love and His law find full satisfaction through the sacrificial death of His Son. You see, God is both just and justifier. His fury is fully absorbed and resolved in the sacrifice of Jesus. When we put our faith in Christ, we are justified. And that means we've been declared righteous and at peace with God forever. And this is a positional truth, because your acceptance and peace with God does not depend on you. It all depends on Christ. You see, my sins do not cancel out my justification or shatter my peace with God. Romans 8.1 is a great reminder. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, it is important to note that this is not a license to sin or just to go out and do whatever you want. It is rather saying that when you put your faith in Christ, you have been adopted into God's family. It's saying that He doesn't just go and disown you every time you sin after that. But because, because if that was the case, that would mean it would put the emphasis on us that we would now have to do something to go and regain our salvation, which is a salvation by works, which is a false gospel. It puts the emphasis on us, and it makes, it makes, it makes you almost like a little God, saying that, that you have some role in, in saving yourself. I have to do this to save myself. It all depends on Christ and what Christ did. You have to make peace with God. That's the first step. Understanding your, your, your state of being apart from Christ. First step. Now let's look at the second aspect of peace, the peace of God. You see, in order to have the peace of God internally, we must first experience the peace to have must, must first experience peace with God, which I, which I just described. You see, on the night Jesus was born, a multitude of heavenly hosts appeared. That, that means thousands of angels appeared, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see, God's peace and His favor is resting on this child, Jesus. Thousands of angels proclaiming this truth. And this peace comes to those on whom God's favor rests. Who is that? As I've already described, it's those of us who have been justified by faith in Christ. Those at peace with God can experience the peace of God internally. 
Shortly before Jesus died, he declared in John 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives you do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He says, Peace I give you, not as the world gives it to you, as I described in the beginning what the world says. This is what peace is. See, this, this inner peace is a gift directly from Jesus. He says, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. And we will experience this peace in proportion to the room we give the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. See, every one of Paul's 13 letters begins with this greeting of peace, and some end with it as well. So how can we experience this kind of inner peace at all times and in every way? Let's look back at our text this morning, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're told, first of all, not to be filled with anxiety about the things of life. You see, a lot of us are like walking civil wars inside of us. We are inundated with worry and concern. I mean, who here has experienced anxiety or worry or concern in their life? Yeah, everyone, I would think, has experienced this feeling. Let's look at Matthew chapter 6, verse, starting in verse 25 together. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more important than food and the body more important than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns that your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valued than they? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, they, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon was considered to be the richest and wisest man that ever lived. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That was Jesus speaking loud. So even with the calm assurance that Jesus is with us always, there are still times that we tend to worry about ourselves and everything that could happen to us, Right? If we were to wake up tomorrow morning and stop long enough to think about all the things that could happen to us during the day, I wonder how many of us would still go out and carry on our day. I mean, if you think of it that way, life could become almost unbearable. There are a lot of what-ifs or variables in our lives that could be sources of worry or concern or anxiety. Like, well, will my car make it to work tomorrow? Oh, what if, what if I get sick tomorrow? Am I going to get fired? What if I mess up at work? Will I have an accident on my way to work? Will my car make it home again safely? What if, what if my house is gone? <laughs> Will I get abducted by aliens? <laughs> you laugh. People worry about that. What if this airplane crashes? What about my kids? What about my spouse? What about my whatever? People are just worried, right? 
Will, will I get eaten by a shark if I go swim in that water? Probably. <laughs> you, you probably will. That, that's mine, by the way. Then that's the way I think about it. I'm afraid of sharks. I mean, does anyone else here share my fear of being bitten in half by a shark? Thank you. Thank you for your support. I mean, for those of you who didn't raise your hand, have y'all seen these things? <laughs> I mean, they're as big as dinosaurs, and they have like teeth that are like bigger than me. I mean, you go swim in the water with that and tell me that's fun. No. Jonathan, lots of you get eaten by a shark like it's shark by lightning. Well, I bet there's somebody's likely to be getting bit off right now. There's probably like 15 people got their legs bit off. You don't go swim in the ocean with me? No. Because I have a bazooka. Blow that thing up, blow it off. No, but I think I've given you enough to worry about this morning, right? I mean, I'm not getting eaten by a shark. But, I mean, the list of things that we can worry about is endless. But if you dwell on the what-ifs, the worry will drive you into a state of panic. And some of them just might start to come true. Kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. We worry that we won't make it to work on time, so we speed up faster than the law allows, and we get pulled over, then we really are led to work. We're afraid that we're going to get ill, so we're, we worry... Causes the, our worry causes our stress levels to rise, which in turn brings on all types of physical symptoms that eventually makes us sick. Kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you go jump into shark-infested water, you're going to get eaten. <laughs> Simple. But Matthew, it says again in Matthew chapter 6, which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? I mean, consider the birds of the air. He talks about the birds of the air. I mean, think about it. They build their nests and they provide for their young. But how often does a strong wind come and destroy their nests and, and disrupt the feeding of their young? But even so, God says that he cares for them and supplies for their need. I mean, have you ever seen a wild bird starve to death? God provides for them. And what makes, what makes you think that, that you're of any less value? And consider the lilies of the field. They don't fertilize the ground where they grow in, and they don't provide their own rain. God provides every necessity for their existence, and they want for nothing. You see, we have a loving, heavenly Father who cares for His children. But how do we come to realize this? How do we come to realize this, this peace that I'm talking about? You see, Paul knows that we can't just determine not to be anxious, and suddenly we're flooded with peace. It doesn't quite work that way. You can't will yourself to tranquility. Paul is saying that the path to inner peace passes through prayer. And the word supplication here in the text carries with it the idea of being specific about what our needs and our problems are. And we're to do this with, as it says, thanksgiving, being careful to have an attitude of gratitude, of thankfulness for what God has already done for us and what he's going to continue to do for us. picture here is that we come to the throne of grace with our arms, the throne of grace, the throne of Jesus, with our arms filled with cares and concerns, and then we hand them off to God. <clears throat> Once we present our request to God, His peace will then come into our lives. You say, here is what I have, God. I trust you with it. Yes, no, later, whatever the answer, I will trust that you, what you want, you will make happen. 
And I want you to notice that this is God's peace, and only He can give it to us. We cannot pretend to have peace when we really don't. And it says this peace passes all understanding, which means that it goes way beyond all that we can even think or imagine. Our minds cannot even fathom this type, this type of supernatural peace. You see, when, when God's peace floods into our lives, it will protect our hearts and our minds against the enemy attacks. Do you have this kind of inner peace? If you're a believer, it's not only available to you, God expects you to display this peace on a regular basis as it matures in your life. I mean, it's really rather simple if you look at the text. Don't be anxious about anything. But if you are, then present your request to God. And when you do, His supernatural peace will come and protect you so that you won't be filled with worry and anxiety. I want to give you an example of a man named George Mueller. I think we have a picture of him, actually. He looked like a friendly guy. George Mueller pastored the same church in Bristol, England for 66 years. He was unconventional in many respects, and he had five ministries outside the church that he pastored, and they were schools for children and adults, Bible distribution, missionary support, track and book distribution, and the most famous one in his words, quote, I can find my quote, to board and clothe and scripturally educate destitute children who have lost both parents by death. In other words, to care for orphans. He built over the years five large orphan houses, and altogether they would hold 2,000 children. And over his lifetime, he cared for 10,024 orphans. When he started in 1834, there was a combination for only 3,600 orphans in the whole of Great Britain. And by the time he was done with his life of ministry, there were over 100,000 orphans being cared for in homes because of his inspiration to other people. <coughs> when he turned 70, remember I said he was unconventional in many respects. When he turned 70, he became a missionary. And for the next 17 years, he traveled the world to 42 different countries. And he estimated, and as they estimate, he preached to over 3 million people. So from 70 to 87, he traveled the world. He was unconventional, remember. One of the things he was unconventional about was that George never asked anyone for money directly. Instead, he prayed in millions of dollars to his ministry, and he never took a salary for the next 66 years of his life. He simply trusted on God and put it in people's heart to give and support him and the orphans that were in his care. You see, the design... The design of this was to put faith in people that, that God is sovereign and that they need not be anxious. He never went hungry, nor did his, his orphans. Mueller insisted that his caring for orphans was not merely for orphans. He says his reason for caring for orphans was, quote, the chief reasons for establishing an orphan house are, one, that God may be glorified. Should he be pleased to furnish me with the means and it's being seen that it is not in vain to trust him and that thus the faith of his children may be strengthened. Two, the spiritual welfare and of the fatherless and motherless children. And three, their temporal welfare. In that order, that God may be glorified and that people would trust in his sovereignty, in his providence. He chose the orphans decisively to, to display the trustworthiness of God in answering prayer. 
One morning, he had all of his orphans sitting at the table waiting to eat their breakfast. But the day before, they had completely run out of milk and bread, and he had nothing to feed the children. So George thought it would be a good idea, which seemed to be his normal idea of trusting in the Lord that the, that the Lord would provide for these children. And so he took to prayer, which is, was his normal attitude. And so about that time, a man knocked on the door of the orphan house, and his truck had broken down in front of the house. And he said, I have something in the truck that I need to give you. Can anybody guess what type of truck it was? It was a milk truck. He said, I have to donate all of this milk or it will spoil. And then another man knocked on the door. And he said, I have all of this bread that I've been baking since 5.30 in the morning and I want to donate it to the orphans. You see, God provided. God provided. And George Mueller had faith in the trustworthiness trustworthiness of God to answer prayer. The sovereignty of God was the foundation for the way he evangelized and the ground for his prayers. George Mueller trusted God. He was willing to be in the uncomfortable place of believing in God's sovereignty and of not being anxious about what he believed God would provide. Now a little gauge on, on how comfortable you are in your walk with Jesus is the amount that you pray. Some of you in here might not pray at all. Some of you only pray when bad things happen or when you want or need something. Your comfort in your relationship with Jesus can be linked directly to, them, to the amount that you pray. When you don't pray, it lets God that you don't need his help. It lets God know that you don't need his help, that you are in control of it all. You should pray because you know that you absolutely have to. You should pray fervently for God's will to take place in your life. You should pray for, for God to do big and radical things through you. You make peace with God. Then you have the peace of God. Having the peace of God is the second step. Now the third aspect. Peace with others. Peace with God enables us to have peace with God enables us to have the peace of God, as I've said before. Another way to say it is that we can't have the peace of God until we know the God of peace. That then leads us to this point, peace with others. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't tell us to be peacekeepers, but instead peacemakers, because it takes effort to bring conflict to an end. When we work in preventing contention and strife, we're doing what God wants us to do. We're called to make peace when we're involved in conflict with someone, and when, when we see others involved in skirmishes. Romans 14, 19 lays out a responsibility. It says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Now let's look at some practical ways that we can live at peace with others. When relationships are out of sync, when we need to take action to make, make them right and productive, whether we are the offender, the offended, or the innocent bystander. In the tiny book of Philemon, we have a biblical model of three people at work to bring about peace. It's located right after Titus and right before the book of Hebrews. We have one is the offender, one is the offended, and the third tries to reconcile them. It was written while Paul was in prison, and it was addressed to Philemon. 
And Paul's purpose is to bring peace between Philemon and his escaped slave Onesimus, who had fled to Rome where he had been converted under Paul's ministry. So we have Paul is the reconciler. You see, Paul went out of his way to reconcile Philemon and Onesimus. He could have just stayed out of it, but, but he chose to be a peacemaker. Verse 13 mentions that Onesimus was assisting Paul in his ministry, but Paul wanted him to go back and make things right with Philemon. Do you know of people who maybe aren't talking to each other? Are you aware of relationships that have been broken down? We must be willing to take action when we see people at odds with each other. And then we have Onesimus as the repenter. You see, peacemaking in the body requires not only one person who is willing to take the initiative, but also people who are willing to be reconciled. When Onesimus escaped from Philemon's household, he evidently had stolen something from him. And now after being converted, he wanted to make things right, so he, he was making the long journey back to Philemon. And Paul was sending a letter with him to encourage Philemon to forgive Onesimus. <coughs> Perhaps you've wronged someone. Do you need to take the necessary steps, no matter how long the journey, to be reconciled? You see, as repenters, we must be willing to acknowledge our sins and to go to those whom we've offended. And then we have Philemon, the receiver. In a, cultural, in a culture without slavery, as they had it in that day, it's hard for us to realize the magnitude of Paul's request because Philemon was asked to receive his runaway thieving slave, not as a piece of property as he once was, but as verse 16 says, as a dear brother in the Lord. Do you need to forgive or restore someone this morning? You see, the need for receivers is necessary in the body of Christ. As receivers, we need to offer the forgiveness and mercy that people need so that we can live at peace with each other once again. Ephesians 4.29 says, Do not let corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear some of you might be at odds with someone in this room this morning. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you had a fight on the way to church. This is the time to make things right. Maybe you need to make a phone call when you leave to a parent or a relative or a friend. And when you do, you need to plan a meeting. And when you get in front of them, listen to their feelings. Philippians 2.4 says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word look here is the Greek word for skopos, or skopos, which means, um, which where we get the word scope as in telescope or microscope. And it literally means to focus on or to pay attention to. If we want to make peace with someone, we must take the focus off our needs and our hurts and consider what the other person is feeling. Often we'll discover that that he or she is hurting themselves. You see, you attack the problem, not the person. And then you emphasize reconciliation, not resolution. There's a, there's a difference between these two words. Reconciliation means to reestablish the relationship and let peace reign. Resolution means to resolve every issue. Second Corinthians 5.19 reminds us that God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. You see, we can disagree without being disagreeable. You and I can have unity without uniformity. And we can walk hand in hand without seeing eye to eye. So, the practical steps to realizing this peace that we have been invited to, this peace of life with Jesus Christ, is this. 
Make peace with God. That's the first step, if you haven't already done it. You might ask, can, can you tell me, how? what can I do? How can I find peace in my life? What, what do I do? What do I need to go do? Well, I'll tell you, it's too late. It's too late? What do you mean it's too late? Well, I mean, you're too late to do anything. Jesus already did everything for you 2,000 years ago. You don't need to do anything. You just need to realize that God offers you this peace where you are. Have you made peace with God yet? And I'm not talking about a truce. A truce is saying, God, you stay on your side of the line and I'll stay on mine. You handle the big problems um, and, and of the world and I'll handle my life. That's not peace. Peace is what will take place when you acknowledge your sins, believe that Jesus died in your place on the cross and receive him into your life by faith. Are you ready to do that this morning if you haven't already? Don't let anything get in the way or stop you from making the decision right now where you sit. And then two, to have the peace of God, we need to let go of that which we're worried about. So identify the one thing this morning that you are worried about right now and give it to God in prayer. Don't hold on to it. Present it to God and you'll experience a peace that is beyond anything that you can manufacture on your own. Inner peace comes as we practice the power of prayer. And then for this idea of reconciling with others, read the book of Philemon. Make peace with God. Then you can have the peace of God, which you can extend the peace to others. I close by quoting Paul from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Pray with me.